The following podcast is a presentation of Project Entertainment Network. Welcome to Vicious Whispers with Mark Tullius, your source for horror, sci-fi, suspense, and all things violent. Hey, what is going on, guys? Thank you so much for joining me today on Vicious Whispers with Mark Tullius. Today we have episode 138 at the end of the episode we'll have chapters from beyond bright side chapters 19 and 20 if you're new to the podcast and haven't listened to those yet i suggest going back to the start or you can always pick up the book uh wherever audiobooks are sold uh i think you can even get it from your library and if not tell them to get it and uh, then you'll be able to they just need you to ask so today's podcast i am by myself but i actually have a purpose lots of times i don't know exactly what i want to talk about not passionate about anything but this week I kind of had a uh, I had a, a good breakthrough, a good realization about one of the ways I had been thinking about something, and it is Mount Sac football. Um, if you can see, watching the video, you see I got the shirt on, got the shirt this Tuesday. Um, my friend George, who I live with all the time, he also went to Mount Sac. Uh, one of his sons also played there, had a great experience. He knows that I went there. Uh, whenever we're lifting, lots of times he'll wear his Mount Sac gear just to represent. It uh, means a lot to him. It was a good experience. And I realized it was for me as well. But I never uh, never really gave him much thought, never talk about it. Uh, I'm always super quick to talk about Brownie adversity. The reason for that is uh, I always uh, I always considered myself a dumb shit. That was the voice. That was my inner voice. Uh, I was always thinking I was never going to be smart enough, never, you know, whatever. And so in my head, even if I would do great in school or, in, or at least decent in school, um, do well on brain tests, all this other stuff, I still consider myself a dumb shit. Uh, it's just a negative thing. So that's why I would always use Brown University. It's like, okay, I graduated from Ivy League school. So in my head, you know, that means other people are going to think I'm smart or smarter than I am. Uh, but I almost never talk about going to junior college. And he, before, before community college, before I went to Mount Sac, first I went to Cal State Long Beach. I uh, went there for a year. Didn't really care for it that much. Um, I was in a pretty bad place. I couldn't play football because my back had been really injured at high school, Bishop Lamont. Uh, so I had a bad back injury. I tried going out for the crew um, at Long Beach. I loved it, but my body just couldn't handle it. So all I did was lift weights. Uh, really did not like that first year of college. I wasn't living on campus. It wasn't a good experience. I was partying a lot. I was working a lot. I was living a dangerous lifestyle, had a motorcycle. Uh, then I decided to transfer to Mount Sac. I figured I would go there for a year and then I would transfer to Fullerton. I thought that'd be a better choice. So I did that for a year. Um, that So that second year of college, I was lifting a lot of weights. I would always go into the weight room when the football team was lifting. And I'd be, uh, and not always at the same time, but there was a lot of overlap. And so I got to meet some of the coaches. They saw that I was, you know, uh, just as strong as many of their football players. They were trying to convince me to play for them, but I, I was like, no, it's not gonna happen. I, I'm done with football, my back's messed up. Uh, but the following year when I was supposed to transfer to Cal State Fullerton, uh, I didn't get the classes that I wanted. So I think out of the four or five classes that I had applied for, I was only gonna get two of them. It was gonna be a waste of time to even go there. I was pretty upset. I remembered that the coaches at SAC had said, you know, they could help me out if I were to play for them. So I went back to SAC because it was too late to even register for classes. I told them I would play for them uh, if they could help me get my classes. Coach Fisk was awesome. He brought me in, saw uh, Evans Roderick, the academic advisor. 
a counselor and they helped me get classes. I didn't know whether or not I was going to actually stick with football. I was figuring I was going to have to drop out because of my body, but it was pretty awesome. Uh, I think I got there maybe like two weeks before the season started. I don't remember exactly, but I was able to get a starting position on defense, which I hadn't played in high school. And uh, we had an incredible season. We had a great season. I'd never felt like I was a, I was never a standout player, but I did my job. Um, I was a tackle on the defensive line. Um, and so all this time, you know, I, I've never really, never really appreciated because then I got the call to go to Brown University, never really thinking about what went into that, um, how the coaches at SAC, how hard they tried to get all of their players uh, moved on to the next level. I mean, that was their goal. And they did with so many players every year, they would have so many different players go to division one or division two schools or some division three. Um, but so I get the call to go to Brown. I go to Brown University. I didn't even know Brown existed. I never even thought about going to an Ivy League, but it was such a great opportunity. I did. Um, but when I was there, I always felt like I didn't belong. One was that I transferred into the school. Another was that I transferred from a junior college, which is, you know, it, in everyone's mind over there, or at least what I thought, how I thought people were going to look at me was, oh, this guy's just some dumb shit that got in because of football. I think a lot of players felt uh, the overall student body and maybe teachers looked down on student athletes at Brown, especially football players and, you know, wrestlers and meatheads. Um, so there was already that bit of prejudice or perceived prejudice. I'm not saying it was actually there. Um, and then on top of that, I was like, I don't want to tell people I went to junior college. And so I always uh, kind of just kept that quiet. And then afterwards, the same thing. But Monday, George and I are lifting weights. Um, we're talking about the brain book, who I should get copies to. We've already thought, you know, it makes no sense to go to high school football players, high school football coaches. They don't want to hear about TBI. They're going to feel like it's an attack on them probably. Again, that's just my perception. Maybe it's different. Maybe maybe they will care. Um, but I was like, maybe at the junior college and college levels, you know, I, I think they care more. I think they have, that's where some more issues are coming about. Uh, students are a little bit better. They're probably more interested in their brain health. They're probably, have if they are having issues, um, they're probably a little bit worse because the added stress and the added hits or whatever else. And I'm not saying TBIs only come from football either. Uh, all sports have them. Shit, students could just not even play a sport and have TBIs from car accidents or early falls or whatever when they were kids. So um, anyhow, George suggested that I write to someone at Mount SAC. Um, and so I sent off a letter to an email to uh, the academic advisor. He'd been there for 45 years, uh, spent lots of his time as an assistant coach. Uh, that was Evans Roderick. The next day he emailed me back, so I'd call him. I went ahead and called him. And even though he had retired uh, this last year, um, you know, I called him Tuesday at 1030. Uh, he was awesome on the phone, made me feel special. That's one reason why I almost didn't even call him. Cause I was like, why do I want to waste someone else's time? Like, he's not going to remember me. He's not going to care about me. Um, but from the second he picked up the phone, it was obvious that wasn't the case or reminded me of what an awesome person he was um, all the way back then. And so he met me off campus. He took me to uh, the coaches. He introduced me to the coaches. Uh, we had a great talk. Um, just about <clears throat> traumatic brain injuries, life in general, 
Um, it was really cool to sit down. It was awesome to see how much respect everyone had for him, whether it was another player, uh, whether it was a player, one of the coaches, just someone that was walking by, uh, a trainer. It didn't matter. Everyone had the utmost respect for him as he did for them. And he's just incredibly friendly. Uh, when I got home, I mentioned it to my brother that I had talked with him. And his text was, he, he was telling me, he's like, man, he's like, he was such a great person. And he's like, think about how many lives that just that one man affected. How many, how many student athletes that he guided in the right direction, how many he helped, you know, find them, uh, you know, make sure they got to a good college. So very grateful for him. It was really cool to um, get that little tour. I was amazed by the school, uh, what they're doing for their facility. Their sports facility is amazing, better than most four-year colleges, uh, or at least just as good. What an incredible recruiting tool, man. I, like Just seeing, seeing the new field, seeing the huge uh, big screen that they have, um, everything they've done for the facility, pretty amazing, top of the line. And, you know, talking with uh, Coach Roderick, he was talking about all the different programs they have, um, like how great their chorus is and just all the, and all the different sports and how well they are. Um, so I think it's something, you know, I, I had told my kids before, like I think uh, community college is a great option. My wife also went to community college. She went to a four year, didn't really care. went back to a community college, then went on to another four year and law school. Now she's incredibly successful. And so it's not like community college hurt her at all. It, it was a chance, you know, to kind of find ourselves. And that's one thing I realized. I didn't know what the hell I wanted. Um, I didn't know where I was headed, what I was going to do. I was in a very self-destructive place. But because these coaches, you know, they saw something in me. They wanted to help. Um, you know, that gave me, being on that team gave me a sense of purpose uh, and you know, a new friendship, new opportunity. Um, and it was cool. And I really got along with those guys because they were all grinders. These were all guys that maybe they didn't have the grades or they screwed off a little bit, or there were guys that had just gotten out of the military and now were older and just wanted to play football. Um, so it was a cool group of guys. I don't really remember all that much because of who knows what a reckless lifestyle, playing football, playing all, you know, combat uh, boxing and MMA and all that stuff afterwards. So <clears throat> I am grateful for that. I am grateful for, for football. I don't want people thinking that because I wrote a book about traumatic brain injuries that I'm against football. Sometimes it's hard for me to watch. Just like it's hard for me to watch uh, MMA sometimes and I can't watch boxing. But, you know, this is one of the things I was telling the coach is like, okay, we can play these sports. Uh, we just have to be careful. We, everyone has to know what to look for, whether it's player, coach, parents, all that. And then when something does happen, we have to take the time to heal the concussion. Um, we have to be aware of what's going on with our mental health. And then when we're done playing, we have to make sure that we're healing whatever damage we accumulated and just not think, okay. What I was always thinking is like, okay, I got through it. I'm past it. I was like, mm, that's not necessarily the case. Sometimes that inflammation process could take 20, 30 years. And because of this book, I'm hearing from so many guys that I played football with in the past, uh, guys that I fought with, you know, so many of them are having issues, but at least they're able to see, okay, there's a reason why we're having this, these issues and there's a way to hopefully heal it or at least better deal with the symptoms. So even though it was a little bit strange handing out books of TBI to the different coaches, like that's my whole approach. Like, okay, I just want to make people aware of this, uh, whether they had played in the past, 
And the other really cool thing is too, with almost everyone I talked with, you know, my mom came up and about, you know, what we've done to kind of hopefully postpone her, you know, potential dementia um, by doing neurofeedback and, and correcting her sleep. And so that was really my selling point with a lot of people is like, cause so many of us have, you know, either parents or grandparents or someone that we know that is dealing with dementia. Maybe they already have it. Uh, it's a very scary thing. No one wants it. And so, uh, you know, that's why I want to try to get this book to as many people as possible, whether they're former athletes, current athletes, never played in their lives. It doesn't really matter. Um, you probably know someone that is dealing with a traumatic brain injury or the, the results of a traumatic brain injury. And um, so there's ways to fix it. Tuesday made me realize just how much I did get from going to SAC, how much I do appreciate it, how much I appreciate the coaching staff, Coach Evans Roderick, everyone that helped me get to that next level, what they've done for so many other students. Uh, my younger brother, he also went there. It was a great experience for him as well. So definitely consider your <clears throat> local junior college, community college, whatever it is to your college. Uh, I think it's a great option. Save money get the same, almost the same education. Really the difference between Cal State Long Beach and Mount Sac, there, I didn't notice any difference between the classes. This is also 30 years later, so don't quote me on shit. Um, but then also again, the difference between Mount Sac and Brown University, you think there was this huge difference. It was really a difference in maybe how many big words students would use, uh, not really the difficulty in the class. So um, yeah, I think it's, a great opportunity for a lot of people, something that should be considered. Hopefully that helps you make a decision if you are trying to figure out where you're going to go to school. All right, guys, I'm going to take off. I will leave you with the story as promised. We have chapters 19 and 20 from Beyond Brightside. Hopefully you guys are digging. All right, I will talk to you next week. Have an awesome week. Later. Night 5. Chapter 19. Something soft and fuzzy nudged my hand. My eyes were closed, no memory of where I was. A cat meowed. Mellow. Mellow meant Becky. Becky meant Tone. Tone meant the shack under the bridge. I breathed in and gagged on the stench of mud and mold. The awfulness of the L.A. air amplified under the bridge. The other smell was scary. A rottenness I swore wasn't coming from me. There was another smell underneath it all. A hint of sweet mixed into the sour. It brought me back to high school. Janelle's parents asleep in the next bedroom. Her skin so warm, so soft, so smooth. Mello was still meowing, but now there was someone's hand on mine. Joe, Becky shook me. Time to get up. It had seemed like I should have learned by then, but goddamn it hurt rolling onto my side. You okay? How's it feel? Still groggy, I kept my eyes closed. Like someone shot me. You want a pill? Think it helped last night? Considering I don't remember shit after lying down, I'd say, yeah. Nothing? I opened my eyes, caught enough of Becky's thought to stop me. Why, did I do something stupid? 
No, not at all. It was dark in there, with just the fake flickering lantern and slivers of light coming through the cracks, but I could see she had changed. Black t-shirt and blue jeans, a black beanie hiding her hair. I just wanted to thank you. It was nice. I panicked, found it hard to breathe. Yeah, Becky was pretty and had a nice body, but there's no way I ever would have done the thing I swore to myself I'd never do. Becky touched my arm, left her fingers there to calm me. Joe, I asked you to hold me. That's all you did. I breathed a little easier, but was still disgusted with myself for having that worry in front of her. To break the uncomfortableness, I focused on whether I was going to heave. Oh my God, I feel awful. Becky handed me a pill and a water bottle. You need to eat, and drink as much of that as you can. When was the last time you even had any? I swallowed the pill and gave her my best smile. Yes, Mom. She sat beside me on the mattress. I'm serious. So, what's on the menu? Becky dug into the backpack. I'd recommend beef jerky or a chia pouch. The cliff bars are good, too. I wasn't sure I could handle solid food, so I opted for a blackberry chia. Delicious, but gross. The squishy seeds stuck in my teeth. Guess you're hungry. Want another one? I shook my head, used my tongue to windshield wiper my teeth clean. Better see how I tolerate this one first. Smart. And as soon as you're ready, we should get you changed. For what? The camp. My brain was still half asleep. Camp? Where my parents were taken. Probably Danny and Sarah, too. I pretended like I'd known that all along. When we going? Soon as you get dressed? Was there footage of us from yesterday? I don't think so. Why? Why are we changing? Becky shrugged. How about just because you're bloody and gross? Oh. I looked at my baggy jeans and remembered why I wanted to forget what I stepped in and splattered all over me. Makes sense. She handed me a pile of clothes that had been stacked beside her submachine gun. A clean pair of blue jeans, in case we use your plan. I'd forgotten what that plan had been, but figured she'd remind me if we needed it. The bathroom was barely big enough for the bucket and crate, so I asked, Mind if I change here? Don't be dumb. Let me help you. If you don't mind. Becky shook her head. With a little chuckle, she said, The things you worry about. I apologized and laid back so she could switch out my jeans. Becky slipped my right boot on, but set the left one down, took hold of my ankle. Jesus, Joe, this isn't good. We were fucked no matter what, my foot the least of our worries, but I kept it friendly. Matches the rest of me. Carefully as she could, she eased the boot on and laced up both pairs. She undid the sling and slipped off my shirt. The bandage was stuck to my shoulder. Becky gagged when it peeled off with a wet slop the skin an angry red around the wound. Looks like I forgot the sunscreen. It's not funny, Joe. She put her hand on my chest, her fingers cold. It's burning up. It'll be fine. Just need to get the right meds is all. Becky didn't call me on the wishful thinking. I don't have another bandage. How about some napkins or something? Becky ignored me and dug through the middle bag. Here she said. 
holding out a small pink package in the roll of duct tape. What's that? A type of napkin. She tore open the package and pulled out a maxi pad. Now you'll know how it feels to wear one. I couldn't help but smile as she taped the pad on me. I feel better already. Becky helped me sit up and tied my sling, slipped the black sweatshirt over me. Look, I sliced the inside so it looks like you've got your hand in the pocket. I felt so goddamn awful but tried to hide it. So we're really going to do this? I have to. Becky stroked Mello, who was curled up at the bottom of the mattress. You don't. Yeah, I do. I waited for Becky to face me. I go where you go, as long as you want. She looked at me the way she probably looked at her parents. I'm not your responsibility. I shrugged my good shoulder. Decision stands either way. All right, then, Becky said. We need to get going. You talk to Tone or Dirt? She stood, her beanie grazing the drooping tarp. They're expecting us soon. At least me. I clicked my tongue to call Mello over. He was happy to hobble over, rub his head against my hand. I put him on my lap and absorbed his purr. Wished I could hear his thoughts, because he was the one guy who didn't hate me. What about this little dude? No. I'm afraid this is home base for now. She paused, afraid her voice might crack. Trying to sound strong enough for both of us, she said. If we don't return, he'll find someone else to watch over him. Becky set aside the door and peeled back the curtain, peeked outside before giving me the green light. The sun had nearly set, a soft glow creeping over the edge of the wash. I'd never considered the concept of almost dark versus completely dark, but that was because I never had a price tag on my head. I also didn't have a gun to hold, all of them put away in the bag Becky's carrying. So I didn't sound like a sissy, I said. Should we wait another five minutes? The sun will be down soon. Becky eased me past her with a hand on my back. Don't pay anyone any attention, and they'll do the same. No one cares about us. Trusting in Becky is all I had, so I followed her past the makeshift houses, passing a tent where a group of people huddled around a trash can with a fire burning inside. There were a handful of children, but most were adults, everyone somber. Becky led us left at the next tent and waved to the father and daughter we'd seen the day before. The little girl gave a shy smile and wiggled her fingers to wave back. So it's okay to pay attention if they're cute. Becky said, ha, and walked us out from under the bridge. It had rained during the day, the ground squelchy. The chia had given me a bit of energy, but it took all I had just to climb the path, sweat pouring down my neck. How sad I've been reduced to the sorry shape of a nursing home patient. A bout of lightheadedness hit me, the usual ache in my shoulder now stabbing. Becky stopped a few yards away. You okay? She asked, kind of joking. A little more serious, she said. Gonna make it? I didn't want to know if she changed her mind about bringing me, and I wasn't about to send her off so I could die alone in the shack. I blew out a deep breath. I'll be fine. Just need more water. She nodded and headed up the slope. I waited until she looked away before I risked small steps, 
scared I'd lose my balance. Becky peeled back the fence at the top. I eased through, careful not to catch my sling on the edges. The van was right where we had left it, the engine idling. The sound of crunched leaves came from near the rear door. A boot turned the corner, and I jumped back, put my arm out like I could protect Becky. The boot put his finger to his lips, raised the brim of his cap to reveal his face. It's Tom. Relax. My hand went to my heart. Holy shit. Becky snickered. Glad you didn't have my sword. I thought I made for a better model. Plus, I don't have half the world looking for me. Yet, I said, sounding like Sharon. Power of positive thinking. Tone shook his head and opened the sliding door. I was about to step up, but he stopped me with a hand on my chest. His eyes were the same icy cold as Dad's, the type you didn't disobey. Hold on, soldier. What is it? Tone studied my eyes, testing to see if I'd crack. How you doing, Joe? Honestly? How you doing with the new meds? Fine, far as I know. The truth was this felt worse than the flu. If I'd felt like this back in Columbus, I'd stay in bed all day, no way I'd leave the house. But this wasn't Columbus, and I was getting a little tired of the way Tone was treating me. What is this? Tone didn't get defensive. Trying to figure out how much to trust you. I'm fine. Last question. What's your mission? That was easy. Whatever she decides. Can you handle a gun without accidentally blowing us away? I said yes, and Tone helped me up onto the futon. Then strap up with a Glock Becky's got. He pointed at the holstered gun and extra magazine at the end of the futon. That one is hers. Got to look official. Becky pulled out the duty belt and handed it to me before shoving our bags into the back and sliding the door closed. She picked up the black windbreakers at the foot of the futon. For us? They won't fool anybody who's really looking, but if you guys are behind me, I think it'll pass, especially in the dark. Dirt was in the passenger seat, wearing blue jeans and a black windbreaker. He adjusted the sun visor so he could see me in the small mirror. You get some rest? Yeah, those pills knocked me out. You in here all day? Dirt's eyes went back to the windshield. No, we did some damage control to see how hard we got hit. Also got in some recon. I didn't want to hear what they discovered because it'd just be depressing. Our situation was not improving. Becky wanted to know, though. Anything that can help us? Tone climbed into the driver's seat and closed his door. Yeah, we found out a lot. He was pissed when he said, We know for sure they were tracking us through the phone or radio. I had the spot scouted and sure enough, the boots rolled up. I get it. It's my fault. Becky put her hand on my thigh. No, it's not. Tone thought, shit, but didn't say anything and pulled away from the curb. We've had guys watching the park as well. There's no telling if your parents are in there, but we found the best way in. But having a way in doesn't mean there's a way out. The place is crawling with boots. At the corner, Tone made a right and headed toward the freeway. This mission does not have a high percentage success probability. Doesn't matter, Becky said. Joe and I are going. Both men nodded. I squeezed her hand to let her know I'd be beside her. Dirt turned in his seat to face us. 
I sent up a drone to see the layout. Looks like whatever's going on is happening in the middle of the park. The entire thing tarped off. Big patch of blue. That's where they're keeping everyone? Most likely. Either that, or they've got them crammed in the small rec center and bathrooms. Those are the only two structures on site besides the tiny shed and baseball dugouts. Dirt ran his hand through his beard. I brought the drone down low to get a peek, but it got fried. He shook his head and faced the front. Not sure whether it was shot or disabled some other way. Everything went black on my end. Yeah, they definitely don't want anyone snooping. How far is it? Five more minutes at most. It's just south of Whittier Boulevard and north of the Five Freeway. The names meant nothing to me. The city a geographic jumble I'd never exit. I stopped looking out the front window and sat back. Worried the van must have been reported. I hadn't considered we could be pulled over any minute. I didn't realize dirt was eavesdropping, but he found me in the rear view and said, We're good. We got eyes and ears in their network. Not as much as we'd like, but enough to know we're clean. There wasn't any talking the rest of the way. Everyone off in their own world. Tone turned onto a residential street and parked in front of a small brown house halfway up the block. Where is it? Tone cut the ignition. Straight ahead. We're on foot the rest of the way. The door slid open, and Tone and Dirt got out, both with their boot regulation submachine guns at the ready. There's no getting caught. That's a slow death. A coward's death. I tucked the magazines into the windbreaker pocket that Becky helped me into. The gun felt heavier than I'd remembered. But Tone held up a finger and paused to make sure I was listening. No one other than Dirt makes a move until I give the order. I didn't know if it was the fresh air, the pill, or adrenaline from knowing death was one mistake away, but I felt much better. The sun had set, the street lamp slow. Just an ordinary street in an ordinary neighborhood. The three of them started down the sidewalk, but I noticed two little boys pointing at us from the house we'd parked in front of. Becky came back for me. Come on, they think we're boots. No reason for them not to. At the end of the block, two motorhomes were pointed in a V, their headlights bright, just enough space between them to drive a car. Tone waved us forward. And remember to speak out loud so we don't look suspicious. Yep, just four dickheads returning to base. Most of the houses on either side of us had their blinds closed, the front yards all empty. What are we walking into? Is there a checkpoint? What kind of security? They've got cheap fence all the way around covered in blue tarp. He pointed to the right. The entrance is one street over. There are several large motorhomes parked alongside the fence on that side. They got two guards at that gate at all times, and another six pour out any time people approach with a suspected telepath. Tone pointed ahead. Up here's the side entrance, where they bring in their cars, usually with prisoners in the back. Two guards up here, but it seems mostly like facial checks, not real security. I walked slower, could see that the motorhomes were positioned to block traffic from both directions, leaving only the one way through the entrance. Are we just gonna walk in? That's the plan. Holy shit, we're dead. No, we're not. Believe, Joe. Only way it's going to work. Remember, kid, we'll know what they're thinking. If we're compromised... We'll improvise. 
I took the gun in my weak hand to wipe my sweaty palm. All right. Dirt, stick to my left. If we get past them, I want you hanging by the exit. We were about twenty yards from the motorhomes when both driver's side doors opened. It was hard to see much with the headlights messing up my vision, but I could make out a boot exiting each vehicle and walking to the front. Wrong gate, fellas, the guy on our side of the street said, in an Asian accent I couldn't place. This is for vehicles only. Tone kept walking and thought, follow my lead. It's all good. He thumbed over his shoulder and said, vehicles back there. The other guy, a white kid who looked a year out of high school, said, Sorry, but we've got orders. Foot traffic is through the front. Tone motioned at us. Come on, I've got new recruits and they're both late. I don't want them getting fired. Both boots waited at the front of their trucks, neither with a hand on their weapon. We weren't a threat, just a nuisance. I was about a dozen feet back, too far to hear their thoughts. Becky thought, that didn't make sense to either of them. Dirt headed for the guy on the left, put his hand in his pocket. Hold on, I got paperwork in here. The boot on the right, who looked a little like Dr. Osaka, said, Nelson, don't bother. Speaking to us, he said, we don't have time for this, guys. Just take it to the front. Tone switched his gun into his left hand, reached into his back pocket. Trust me, you're gonna wanna see this. Chapter 20 Chang and Nelson stayed where they were in front of their motorhomes. Becky and I stopped a good ten feet back from them. Tone and Dirt closed the distance to an arm's length. From that far away, I couldn't hear any thoughts other than Becky's frantic, We're cool, we're cool, we're cool. Chang's hand now rested on the butt of his holstered pistol, his gaze jumping from Tone to the rest of us. Nelson didn't seem to care what Chang had told him because he was holding out his hand waiting for the paper Dirt promised. Dirt said, Here it is. But it had already come, a flash of his blade before it plunged into the side of Nelson's neck, the blood spraying Dirt's windbreaker. Tone was a split second slower and Chang a little faster, jumping back as Tone's knife sliced the air just inches from his face. Chang tugged on his gun, but the holster kept it stuck to his hip. He stumbled back and banged into the motorhome's grill. Tone lunged forward, stabbed at Chang's chest, but Chang swiveled his torso like he was in the Matrix, turned his back on us to dodge the knife. Chang popped the holster, raised his gun, the red dot on Tone's forehead. Tone covered his face and dropped to a ball, because he saw what Chang couldn't. From behind, Dirt gripped a handful of Chang's hair and yanked, his knife filleting the boot's neck into the widest smile I'd ever seen. Chang's gun clanked off the concrete without firing. Tone retrieved it and got to his feet. Becky said, oh shit, and ran at Nelson, who was crawling to his gun, a trail of blood behind him. With one hand holding his neck, Nelson picked up the submachine gun. Becky kicked his hand, the gun flying from his grip and skipping under the motorhome. She got both hands under Nelson's arm and tossed him over. He landed on his back with a loud oomph. She dropped a knee on his gut, causing an even louder one. Nelson tried pushing Becky's knee off his belly, but she wasn't going anywhere and pinned down both his hands. Why? Nelson couldn't speak, couldn't understand what was going on. Why? Becky kept him pinned, the blood pouring from his neck. Her face was set in determination, but her mind screamed, 
What am I doing? Nelson was fading quick, his only thought to stop the blood flow. Let go. Please. Becky kept her weight on him, but released his right hand, ready to snatch it if it was a ploy. Nelson was out of tricks, and had just enough strength to bring his hand to his neck before he went limp. This whole time, my aim alternated between the motorhomes, sure someone would barge out and open fire on us any second. There was only silence from the vehicles. The slam of a door down the street. Kids playing in a backyard. Dirt and Tone had taken what they needed from Chang, and each had a hold of two limbs. Tone thought, on three, and counted them off, tossing Chang beneath the motorhome. Dirt threw Chang's windbreaker over the one he was wearing, popped on this hat, put in an earpiece. Becky thought my name. Help me get his jacket. She was holding Nelson by his collar, so he was nearly sitting up, his head dangling back. The windbreaker slipped off. I handed it to Becky. I wasn't cut out for this. You wear it. You're the better actor. A pair of headlights from behind us lit up the scene as Tone and Dirt got ready to make Nelson disappear. Joe, handle it. I was closest, my gun drawn. The lights were blinding and coming right at me, maybe twenty feet away. I raised my weapon, finger on the trigger. The vehicle screeched to a halt. I couldn't see because of the headlights, so I stepped to the driver's side, kept my gun trained on it. It was an old Ford four-door, a Hispanic couple up front, two teenage boys in the back. They all had their hands in the air. The mustached man behind the wheel shook his head back and forth. Oh, Dios mío. I drew from the Spanish tapes I'd studied and asked, ¿Qué haces? He pointed at the house to his right. Vivimos aquí. From the back seat, one of the boys thought, That guy's dead. The other boy said, Look at all that blood. None of them suspected anything, but all were rightfully scared. I figured the kids could translate if the parents didn't understand because I'd screw it up in Spanish. We just got attacked, and there may very well be another one. Go somewhere safe, at least for an hour. All night if you can. The wife said, Oh, God bless you. The man held his hand in a half salute. Yes, sir. Thank you. He turned into their driveway, backed out, then drove away. Dirt and Tone tossed Nelson under the motorhome. To me, Tone thought, So you just let them go? No worries they might recognize you? It doesn't matter. I walked past him and joined Becky, who was standing in the shadows where the back of Chang's motorhome met the edge of the park. The family didn't care about me. But even if they did, I knew. I can't get any more wanted than I already am. Both baseball fields were lit, but they were in the far corners, their light ending a good forty yards away. Nothing but field between us and the giant tarped area that stretched from one second base to the other. Dirt came up close enough to share his thoughts. Looked just like a real boot if it weren't for his beard. All right, guys, good job. The rec center and bathrooms are to the left. Stay away from the main entrance to your right. Tone thought. We'll keep this exit secure as long as we can, without unnecessarily risking our lives. He looked right at Becky. That means fucking hurry up and do what you came here to do. The night was still early, and the neighborhood awake, but operations had ceased, or at least slowed down inside the camp. On the back end of the park, 
there were a few people milling outside the row of RVs that blocked the view from the street to our right. If it hadn't been for the lights on them, I wouldn't have spotted three small buildings off to the left. A silhouette walked between the buildings and disappeared in the darkness. There was no telling who else was roaming about, ready to stumble upon us. Becky tugged my sleeve and headed forward. Come on, let's do this. The ground was squishy, a muddy mess from all the boot activity. I worried about the noise we were making, but Becky assured me, We're fine. We're boots. We work here. You talk to anyone who stops us. I wasn't proud telling her this, but I wanted to get out alive and it wouldn't be smart to withhold information. I can't do it. Deal. Halfway to the tarp, I could finally see under it. There were three large fenced-off areas, pig pens full of prisoners. The largest was to our right, packed full of people, many huddled together and covered with packing blankets, loners spread out amongst them. The middle pen was about the same size as the first, but had fewer than half the people. Number three, the small pen to the left, held the fewest, just a dozen or so. This is the backside of the cages, Becky thought. Look, the guards are on the far side. She was right, but we still had no plan. What the hell are we going to do? Becky kept moving forward toward the middle pen where the porta potty touched the fence. We find my parents. I stood beside her, my heart thumping so fast. Joe, I need you to calm down. Can you do that? I took a deep breath and blew it out, peeked around the potty. The two guards at the gate on the other side hadn't moved. Even if they were to turn around, I doubted they'd see us with the lights so low. Anyone there? Becky focused her mind. Anyone hear me? I couldn't hear a response, but Becky flashed me four fingers, then two more a second later. I need your help, she thought. Peter and Paula Glynn, fifty-something couple. My dad has brown hair, clean-shaven, businessman. My mom is thin and tall with dark hair. Would have come in yesterday or the night before. Becky nodded like she was listening, but I got nothing. There was a shuffling on my side of the potty, and an older man thought, You've got to help us. A woman I hadn't known was there joined in. You are in boots? A teenage girl crawled closer to the cage. You're getting us out of here? Becky answered. We're sure as hell gonna try. There was silence, but Becky was concentrating on something. She asked, Where are you? I was just a few feet to her side and didn't get why she was asking. Right here. Not you, Joe. Quiet. The porta potty door opened and closed. A woman thought, Can you hear me? We both answered yes. My parents, have you seen them? I haven't heard either name, and I've taken it on myself to document every person I cross paths with. It helps keep us human. You hear everyone's name? Everyone that comes into this cage. The ones that are telepaths, at least. Not everyone's a telepath? Hardly. Maybe one out of every three or four? Becky asked. So what's the difference in cages? Could they be in one of the others? Possibly. Over to your right is intake. No telling how long that stay can be. From there, you visit the rec center. And if you're lucky, you get sent in here or to the left. What does it take to get moved? From what I've gathered, they stick you in here if they think you're valuable, either for ransom or personal reasons. The third is for telepaths destined to be sentinels. How about Sarah or Danny? The lady was already moving. 
The door opened and closed. I started saying something to Becky, but she held up her finger, wincing at whatever she was taking in. What is it? She shoved her finger at me. Chill. It's hard to fucking chill sitting in the shadows surrounded by boots and sentinels, prisoners trapped in cages. But I did my best to calm my mind. After a few seconds, Becky thought, Sterling. I repeated the name, marveled how she thought it with such anger. Reyes. Reyes? Donner. Who are they? Our top three most wanted. A gunshot froze us in place. Another shot was fired. My first thought was that Tone or Dirt had opened fire, but these shots came from our left, muffled from being indoors. It's one of those three buildings, Becky thought, as she led me along the back of the small pen. Everyone wrapped in a blanket, no one paying us any mind. My guess is the rec center. Becky paused at the corner of the pen, 40 yards of darkness between us and the buildings. A boot exited the bathroom to the right. He turned back to the door and locked it, wiping his palms on his pants as he headed toward the rec center. You think that's the shooter? The boot entered the rec center, the door closing behind him. Becky slipped her gun into the holster and slid the sword from the sheath on her back. She left the safety of our corner, holding the sword along her leg. With more hate than I'd ever heard from her, she thought, I bet that's Sterling. I kept my gun in hand because I wasn't a quick draw. I suggest putting it away. Too many boots with dirt and tone way back there. Any shooting and we're done. It felt like a dumb move, but I holstered my gun and pulled out my cheap plastic stun gun. Becky walked with a purpose, her intentions set. I couldn't believe she was only 16, and that I was the one who had forced her into this mess. Joe, shut up. Seriously, these are not good guys. I didn't mean to think it as it went against the rationalization I constantly told myself to deal with the guilt, but my mind went to the newbie and his wife, their little boy. Not all of them. Less than ten feet from the door, Becky thought, what they do in that bathroom? You don't want to see. I'm getting my parents out of here. I'll cover you best I can. There was no one to our left, just a flatbed truck parked behind the bathroom and loaded with black trash bags filled with lumpy material. Becky stopped at the door. I took a last look around. A boot sat in his car on the baseball mound in the far corner, its headlights on the backstop and bleachers. I told her, it's all clear out here, but we're walking in blind, so be prepared to react. Becky put her shoulder against the door, sword at the ready. I didn't know if she was talking to me or herself when she thought, strike first, strike fast. Becky slipped inside without a sound, and I followed her. After the darkness outside, the fluorescent lights seemed so bright. There was a hint of sulfur in the air. I'd expected Becky to pause before turning the corner, but she walked into the main room like she belonged. The room's floor and walls were white tile, just like the VFW, a flashback to the slaughterhouse. The boot who'd been in the bathroom was at the table along the back wall, fixing a cup of coffee. Looking right at him was another boot, a forty-something heavyset blonde, resting his boots on top of the receptionist's desk. Sounding a little too happy, he hitched a thumb at the closed door behind him. Gotta clean up on aisle seven. Becky headed for the boot getting coffee. I stuck my stun gun in my windbreaker pocket. Felt I should say something to give her some time. Quickest thing I could think of was, God damn, it's getting cold. Neither man paid me any mind. The coffee boot turned to the desk guy. 
What happened? Donner didn't care for a response and... The blonde said, cutting himself off when he noticed Becky, who was arm's length away from his partner. He got his feet off the desk, his voice suddenly all official and kind of creepy when he told her, You're new. Coffee Guy held up his mug to Becky. Care for some? Before she could say anything, he said, Whoa, what happened to your face? The blonde boot thought, Oh, shit, because he saw the sword. He scrambled out of his chair and shouted, Sterling! But Becky was already moving, kicking out Sterling's leg and pushing him over, driving her sword into his chest when he hit the ground. The blonde boot fumbled with his holster. What the fuck? Sterling was still fighting, both hands on the sword, but Becky wasn't budging. I ran around the desk, the stun gun out and clicking. The blonde guy looked my way as he took aim at Becky, but I got to him first, buried the stun gun into his neck, kept driving forward as he spasmed to the floor. I held that trigger as hard as I could, his body spasming, his feet smacking the tile. Becky was on her feet, facing the side room where someone was turning the knob. A man's gruff voice said, What the hell's going on out there? The door opened, and a stocky boot with a graying crew cut stepped out. He turned tail at the sight of the body and Becky's dripping sword. He slammed the door behind him. Becky threw the door open and tackled him, a sharp cry of pain that wasn't hers. I still had the stun gun going, but my guy had ceased movement. I hurried into the office and found Becky mounted on the boot, her sword an inch above his mouth, blood spreading out from his torso. Becky, you don't want to do that. She didn't acknowledge me. What's your name? His face scrunched up in pain. Captain Franklin Donner. Becky thrust the sword through his mouth. He tried rising up, and I could see the blade sunk into the carpet. Becky holding it down with all she had. His legs flailed, but only for a second, before flopping back down. There was no escape. This has been a presentation of the Project Entertainment Network.